Hey guys, I got a super show for you today. I am talking with Dr. Rebecca Schwarzlos. She is a neuroscientist who just wrote a book called Brainscapes, the warped wondrous maps written in your brain and how they can guide you. Uh, super, super smart lady and super nice. This is a great conversation about the wonders of your brain and the maps that guide the wonders of you. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. So, Rebecca, congratulations on your new book, Brainscapes. This just came out, and you've probably been pretty busy. How many how many radio shows and podcasts uh, have you done so far about the book? Um, I think four or five now. Oh, so uh, I mean, I have some more some more scheduled as well. So it's been really really fun and exciting to be talking about it with people. Yeah. It's pretty neat, right? Yeah, feels good. How how long did it take you to write Brainscapes? Um, you know, I shudder to disclose this, but I I think from start to finish, from the idea to today, it, it was a little over a decade. I mean, it was a long really? time. Yeah, I didn't work on it consistently throughout that whole period of time. I had years where I you know because of work and because of children and other things, it was it was sitting lying dormant. But um, even when it was dormant, I was thinking about it and I was taking notes and um, kind of making a mental map in my head of what I wanted it to be. So really you're saying the brain is so complicated. It took 10 years to assimilate all this, digest it and then put it back out. Um, it probably says more about my inefficiency <laughs> than my brain's inefficiency. <laughs> um, but uh, it is complicated, yeah. <laughs> No, in my case, it's just, um, you know, it was making the time and also sort of um, reaching a point in my life and career where I could really dedicate that time to writing it. So ten, roughly a decade, uh, how, how does it feel like that you got, because it's your baby, right, kind of, and, and it's out there. Uh, so it's real now. How, how does that feel? Oh, you know, it, I have to say when... Um, you know, it's, it's been such a long time coming that there are ways in which it's kind of amazing. It's only just now coming out, you know, but then um, so you, you could feel a little jaded and feel like you've been waiting so long. It almost it's a sort of anticlimactic, but it, it's really not, you know, when the when those um, first copies, a box of copies arrived at my doorstep, um, I, I just almost started crying, you know, and I, I really felt like I, I mean, I have to real by a lot, you know, live children. <laughs> but I, I really did feel like, you know, the store could come by and deliver this third baby for me that I had spent so much more time making. <laughs> but now it was like a fully fledged um, creature that was going to be out in the world. And, and it was really an exciting emotional experience. So, um, so yeah, it, 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 it surprised me how it hit me when I when I had one in my hands. That's really awesome. Um, and I get it. Like it's, it's, uh, there's really nothing like it. Cause you, you created something and, and now people are talking about it. I mean, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's exhilarating. Um, it's exciting. And it, and it just makes you feel like that time was worthwhile and that hopefully people can come away reading the book, feeling like they understand themselves and their world and their brain better. And that just makes me feel really good about the time that I put into writing it. So you're passionate, you love writing I do. and, and you're a neuroscientist who seems somewhat passionate about the brain, passionate enough to, 
to put your two loves together um, and to, to share it with others. What got you into, what made you decide to write about the maps inside the brain? Yeah, so um, so in my graduate studies, um, I was working on object recognition. Um, so I was doing a neuroscience PhD. I was working um, in the lab of Dr. Nancy Kenwisher, who's a fantastic, amazing uh, scientist at MIT. And we were looking at, um, at the properties of a certain area of the brain that is highly responds strongly to faces um, and is very important for face recognition. And um, there was some evidence, existing evidence that there was also potentially um, the, uh, uh, some representation of body information. So the visual information about you know, hands, whole bodies, feet, the things and and so what I um what I as I explored that this was my first graduate study project I um I discovered you know that I could show that that was a, a separate area right next to the face area there was actually like a, a an area that was dedicated to processing images of of body parts um, including hands and feet and and torsos and everything and that 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 really got me intrigued like why are these areas right next to each other, like kissing cut, just right so close. And um, I, so that really got me to think about layout and sort of what drives the organization of areas and representations in the brain. I started to study more broadly um, what is known about these principles um, and how they, these kind of maps develop in our brains um, and why they're there. Um, as far as we we know, and um, and so I just kind of became obsessed with it. You know, it was just it was just so cool and so interesting. Um, so that was the 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 early origins of of brainscapes. So if you're listening, uh, guys, there are brains in your map, and they represent areas of your body and qualities of your body. Uh, can you can you explain how how that kind of works? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, actually it's, it's not an easy concept, which is, which is why I kind of, I kind of dedicate the first chapter to explaining what I'm, what I mean by a, a brain map, an actual map in your brain. Um, and, and I, I really kind of describe it like this. So um, in, in your, your brain is made up of cells of neurons, you know, and, and if you, if you take the analogy of a, a piece of paper, a map on a piece of paper, you know, your brain cells are like, are like the, the wood pulp in that paper. They're actually what make up the physical map. Um, but instead of representing information with pigments of ink, um, our brain maps represent information by electrical signals, which is how neurons communicate with one another. And the rate at which a neuron is firing um, is its way of representing a particular aspect of your perceptual experience. And so what's kind of amazing about these maps is that they preserve, they preserve um, layouts, aspects of your experience literally across the surface of your brain. So um, an example, um, it really is helpful to think in examples. So an example that I start out with is we're very visual creatures. So I, I start out the, the book talking about um, our visual maps and kind of the, the, the biggest um, visual map that we have, which is um, called primary visual cortex or V1. And it's at the very back of our brain and it's divided across the two hemispheres at the, at the back. And um, what, it, it, what it does is it represents 
um, the light that is falling upon our eyes, um, falling upon our retinas and our eyeballs, um, all relative to where we are directing our gaze. Um, and so uh, the activity in particular neurons, the actual rate at which these neurons are firing, um, and the spatial layout of these neurons is preserving the information that is falling on your retinas, which is what you're looking at. And so there have been studies that have used um, uh, kind of methods where that you can sort of stain the brain and 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 make visit make visible where brain brain cells were active, or you can put a person in a, a scan a brain scan and you can um, scan them while they're looking at something, and you can actually see across the surface of the brain, the patterns of what they are looking at. Um, so that's how, you know, we as neuroscientists can now render these invisible maps visible. Um, but they, they, they're all throughout the brain. And that's just one example. We have um, maps that are um, kind of roughly laid out according to the surfaces of our body. And they reflect the, the touch information that's coming in from touch receptors in our skin. Um, we have maps that are laid out according to frequencies of sound, um, which we detect with our cochlea. And um, there are maps that represent the movements that we make um, in our everyday life. And there are maps that represent um, the spaces around us to which we you know, attend and interact. Um, and these are all these this is incredible architecture that allows us to do um, and perceive and act um, easily, fluidly, and uh, consistently from day to day. So for the, the, the touch map or the surface area map, is that like the, um, the homunculus? Like, would that be a representation of the homunculus? Yeah, so, the, so for people who have maybe taken Psych 101 or have had some experience with that or have just kind of seen in popular culture that, that the, the, the sensory, there, there's two of them. There's the sensory homunculus, which is, um, um, a kind of a person who is, whose kind of body, <laughs> it's pretty wild to look at, right? Whose <laughs> body parts are distorted according to um, the way that the, that the primary sensory touch map is representing them. And what that means is that in the subtitle of my book is the, the warped wondrous maps. And that's because um, these maps are warped and they, they allocate a disproportionate amount of their territory to representing certain parts of our experience. And in the case of touch, that is our, our fingertips, our hands, our faces. Um, and um, so we are therefore able to um, detect just a, a, a far greater amount of information and kind of detailed information on those surfaces of our bodies, which in turn shapes how we interact with the world. And, and you know, we don't, we don't feel things with our feet. You know, when we want to feel something, we and get texture information, we always use our hands. So that kind of capacity, that sort of sweet pot spot for touch um, is very useful for us, but it's also helpful for our brain in terms of, um, you know, our brain couldn't sustain us being that good at feeling with our entire body. That's, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, because like, so the head is big, the lips are super large, the hands are large and the feet are somewhat, somewhat large. Um, so it's very goofy looking, but these, those are the things we use the most, uh, yes. you know, especially in, in our, you know, sensing things, feeling things. And, but like, so when a, but when a baby's developing, they have a lot of sensory information going in through their forearms. 
And I think we lose roughly 80% of that as we, you know, get off our forms and get up on our feet and stuff. So I was wondering, could you take the really grotesque looking cartoon homunculus and would there be a way to make it more proportional, you know, by using the rest of your body to get to start putting that information into the brain? Could you, can you change the maps? Can you make them more clear, uh, better? Uh, I don't know. Um, just a question. That's a, No, it's a great question. And, you know, so to some degree, the map is shaped by, by evolution. And so um, the, the initial basic layout of the map um, is, is driven by our genes and our, um, these chemical signals that are set up in the developing brain that, that, that drive the, the initial layout of these maps, including the, the tactile touch maps. Um, and so, and that's actually part of why we have such sensitive faces, even though we don't really do a lot of touching with our face, um, is because we evolved from animals who walked on their four legs and, you know, most mammals do all their feeling with their face, you know, which is why I have some pictures in the book. And I talk about how, you know, some animals, it's their nose that's the most sensitive or for whiskered animals, their whiskers, some it's like the, the sheep, it's the lips, but there's um, sort of the face area evolutionarily is so important for touching because that's where animals were able to touch. They were sort of propped up on their forelegs and using them to stand. Um, so we as we as um, primates kind of are new in our ability to you know, get up off of our high legs, use these hands a lot. And um, and certainly us as you know, as having graspable hands, um, we use them quite a bit. So we've been able to capitalize on that. So there's some ways in which the map is like is, is already shaped by evolution. So even though we, we don't continue to use the face um, for a lot of feeling as modern humans, we. Um, we still have very sensitive faces. Um, but, you know, the yes, if especially in early infancy, very early infancy, um, and I do talk about this in the last chapter in the case of, of rats, um, if you drastically change the tactile inputs that a, a creature and presumably a human receives, we, we don't do these experiments in humans, that would be unethical. Um, but but, you know, so we kind of have to just extrapolate from what we see in um, uh, what we see in studies with animals. But if you're to drastically change the sensory tactile inputs that a creature receives very early in life, then um, then that can indeed change the, the layout of the touch map in a way that that could that could affect their sensitivity later in life. Um, now, the question of how much these maps can change as an adult, for example, that's, you know, that is a, it's a difficult question to answer. And the answer, I can say that we know that there is plasticity in these maps that continues into adulthood. And so, you know, that's part of why, as you, you know, you, you do something over and over again, you tend to find that it gets easier. You tend to find that you can get better at it. And part of that is mediated by, um, modest changes in your brain maps. Um, but, but, but for the most part, um, these kind of very these maps that mediate sensory perception and action are um, are they kind of get crystallized early on, so that the basic layout and sort of um, basic function is pretty fixed. Um, and so I don't think there are other parts of the brain that are far more plastic. So it doesn't mean that 
um, you know, we're done, you know, we're done by the time we're hit six months, it's over. But um, it does mean that, you know, there are ways in which there's kind of different opportunities for growth and for change at different ages. Um, and so, for example, with, with, with the maps for, for movement, the motor maps, um, I do talk in the book about how there have been studies that, you know, musicians um, show differences in their motor maps um, depending on the, the instrument that they play. And so, for example, if they're like um, a, a, play a stringed instrument or they play the piano, then um, they can have enlarged hand representations in their motor cortex um, for, the, for the particular hands that they use to play their instrument. Um, but it's been shown that that, that particular um, extra space that they receive for their hands, um, that, that is specifically linked to very early musical training. So musical training, you know, five, six, seven. Um, and then even, even later in childhood, um, although you can absolutely pick up an instrument and become an amazing musician, um, that's not gonna be, um, uh, have the, you're not gonna see that big difference in the, in the actual motor map layout because it has started to crystallize. So I got to thinking when you were asking or when you were explaining uh, evolutionary how the face is or the head is represented bigger, does does our map do our maps drive our behavior or do does our behavior uh, drive our maps or is it is it is it both? I love that question. Um, I would say it is it is both, but I think um, especially it really depends as well on age. So especially as a child, a very young child, or even a slightly older child, depending on the map, the timing depends on the sort of detail of which map. Um, the, um, the actions, the sensory experiences are shaping the map more dramatically. And then as we get older, the, um, the maps, you know, it's, it goes more the other direction. So we can still influence the map, but the map is more fixed. And then we are sort of making the most of the the more fixed map that we have. Um, and, and by doing so, we, you know, we make the most of the areas like the sensitive hand that we have to touch or the very sensitive, um, very um, accurate, clear vision that we have at the, our center of gaze. We look with that. So we kind of adapt and use the tools that we have, um, that our brain maps give us to um, eke the most information. Um, as adults. And as I write in the book, it's easy to think about, um, it's easy to think about having kind of crystallized more, more or less static maps or more static maps um, in adulthood as kind of a, a bad thing, like you're sort of stuck um, with what you have. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a gift. You know, I mean, it, newborn babies can't do hardly anything, you know, they're learning so much, but they're not doing anything. And, and compare that to many other creatures that, um, you know, can do quite a bit when they're born. Um, but when we, when we get, you know, when we get older, we need to have some stability in our brain um, in order to not have to learn everything anew every morning when we wake up. And so, you know, this is our sort of scaffolding upon which we can learn in more complex ways and upon which we can kind of build the bigger cognitive load that we have to carry as adults. Yeah, the the reason that question came to me is because you were, you were talking about how other mammals, uh, you know, uh, grew and uh, evolved. But then I was thinking, and I don't know, maybe this, and I could be just completely crazy, 
And if so, I'm crazy. But you're a mother um, and you have two small girls. Yes. Um, and so when my children were little, like it was instinctual where I would just want to put my head to theirs or I would just want to like I would touch them with my face, not necessarily my hands. But I would do a lot of that. And like, and so when you started talking about that, I started wondering, it's like, well, why did I do that? And, and is that, I mean, you're a mother, you may have done that, or I'm just crazy. No, you're, no, you're not crazy. And actually what I, I love about that question. So I, I do the same thing. And honestly, you know, now I, I still kind of like put my, I like to put my lips on my face on my, my girl's heads and sort of smell them and sort of feel them. On my face. And there are these very sort of, um, very sensory ways in which we sort of connect with the people that we love. And I think especially our children and, and also our spouses, there are ways in which we're doing this. And part of that, I think is you're right. You know, even though we don't rub our face on produce at the grocery store to see if it feels firm, you know, we use our hands for that. You only do we that do- once. <laughs> Yeah. Well, then you so, gotta but, get out. <laughs> that's right, right, right. What is this guy up to? Um, but but we do have this sensitive face, and so we do employ it for certain things, including you know our lips for kind of um, sometimes for enjoying food, and our face for kind of intimacy with the ones that we love. And so even though maybe it doesn't serve the same purpose for of discriminating um, things that it did for our, our four-legged ancestors. Um, it's, it serves a different purpose for us. And what I think is also so special about that particular action of bringing somebody close to your face is that it allows you to smell them. And as I talk about in the chapter um, that covers smell, we, um, you know, we are just an untapped well of, of um, kind of odor, perceivers, odor kind of interpreters that we do so much more with smell than we realize. And in fact, science is just starting to catch up with the ways in which we are, our behavior is driven by odors that we may not even consciously realize that we're, we're receiving. Um, And there's a lot of social transmission that happens through scent. And there's a lot of social recognition. So when you put your, you know, you put your face on your child, you are both feeling them in an intimate fashion that that reaffirms to you and to them that you are close and you are kin and you're also smelling them and they're smelling you which is actually an important part of early bonding for humans as well as other creatures nothing smells like a newborn baby <laughs> this is true this is true so how, i don't know if you know yet cuz i'm sure you're still growing and learning but how many okay well I'll just how many maps have you found in the brain like not how many are there, but how many have you found? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I would love to take credit for finding all of these maps, but I cannot. How many um, maps do you know about? <laughs> uh, there, I, I mean, I can't even estimate because honestly, it seems like every week there is a new um, map-like organization that is being reported in the scientific literature. But I, I think it is safe to say that there are, you know, over a hundred maps in your brain and probably more than that, depending on how you count them. Um, Because it's not just in the surface of your brain that you have maps, but also um, in these subcortical areas, the the areas that are lie deeper within your brain. Um, These areas also have maps. And um, so, you know, it's kind of remarkable that so many places that you look in the brain, you see again and again, different variations on this theme. 
um, this map like organization. Uh, so, you know, I, I would feel comfortable, comfortable saying that, you know, you, you should have at least a hundred of these in your brain, especially if you can count the two sides and probably more than that. And we have undoubtedly not discovered them all. That's pretty cool. Um, so I asked if you could improve the maps. Can, can you lose a map? Well, you can absolutely lose a map by brain damage. Um, and that is actually how we have learned the most about these maps and kind of first discovered them. Um, you know, uh, if you, uh, if you have the carbon monoxide poisoning or you have a brain trauma or you have a bullet wound to the brain, um, you have a major stroke, you can knock out um, brain maps. And what often we've discovered the brain maps because what happens when these areas get knocked out is that people lose capacities that they've had all their lives. Um, and so, you know, that can be the capacity to literally visually perceive, so see things. Um, it can be, you can may still perceive, be able to see things, but you may not be able to recognize what any of those things you see are, including your, your own child or your face in the mirror. Um, you can, you can lose the ability to, um, to, to, to consciously, you know, recognize what you're hearing. Um, you can lose motor capacity, the ability to make movements. Um, so, you know, you can have profound damage can profoundly cause you to lose a map. Um, and if you mean in terms of disuse, um, like, so yeah, right. So, um, so usually these maps are so fundamental that you, um, you, you don't not use them. Um, okay. but there are instances, for example, um, there are people who go blind later in life and, um, you know, they, there are people who go blind early in life as well. And um, so for people who go blind later in life, they, you know, something happens to their eyes. They're no longer receiving visual input, but they have this whole um, neural architecture, this whole, these, these visual maps that is laid out and ready to go to process information that's not coming in anymore. To some degree, um, the visual areas of the brain in these individuals is able to start to do a little bit more in other areas. So start to represent a little bit more of other things, but it's pretty limited. Um, but the degree to which it changes can still have a, an impact for an individual's ability later in life, if they go blind, to become more, more independent or more capable or make more with the information that they do receive. Um, but if a child is born blind um, or goes blind very early in life, um, they can totally reorganize and totally kind of reuse what would otherwise be visual cortex um, and turn it into something else. And so it, it instances you can even, um, I almost put it in the book, there's there's these, um, this is an amazing study that looked at people who were uh, blind in one eye and they either kind of lost vision very early, very young or very late in life. And then they, they looked and you could see that the architecture was very different that, you know, people who'd been blind for 60 years, but went blind at age 20, they, st they still had maps that looked pretty normal um, as if they had been, you know, still could see. Um, so that map in some ways it's, um, it's preserved. Um, many features of it do stay, um, but 
again, there is this amount of degree to which we can make more with what we have. And so there is some changes that can be made and those changes can um, help you. Um, so by that, I mean like disuse, you can, you, you're not, you're not, it's not that you're losing the map, but you're basically anything that's not being used in your brain is a, is a terrible thing from a brain and energy and survival perspective. So when, uh, what I'm talking about is not so much that the brain, like the map will wither, but that, that other functions might to some degree be able to capitalize on the disuse of that map and use it for something else. Um, and so to some degree that can happen, but as you get older, it, it becomes less. And by older, I mean, just throughout, I mean, by, you know, by 20, you know, by 20, 25, 30, that's what I mean by older. I don't mean um, like 80. <laughs> right on. But again, like I, I, I don't, I think it's, it's, it should, it shouldn't make us feel like we're stuck. I think it should make us feel, and we have other tools for sort of making more with what we have and sort of changing, but um, the maps themselves, uh, certainly you can also lose capacities um, if you don't, you know, use it. Um, but I, but these kind of foundational maps that represent the senses and the movements, um, they thankfully, we usually can rely on them and they stick around, um, sometimes for better or worse, right. Even if we don't use them anymore. So speaking of the worst part, then if, is that why, like, say somebody loses in a limb, but they still have the representation of it in their brain. Is that what is the, I guess, cause of phantom limb pain and stuff like that? Yes. So exactly. So you're have you're seeing an instance where you have um, a region of the of that map exactly that um, used to process say an arm, and used to process touch on that arm, and now nothing is coming into it. And um, so what happens often is that the there um, in a sense because part of what the story of the map is that you know things that are close by in the map are interconnected and kind of talk to each other more. The neurons next to each other in a map represent related things and talk to each other. And if the, the arm is gone, then neurons nearby representing, representing other parts of the body that are next to it in the map um, begin to communicate with these neurons and sort of capitalize on them. Yeah. And so what happens then is you can have like a mix up where you, you, you're, you know, you maybe you have touch on the face um, but you perceive it as touch on your arm, which is no longer there, but the rest of your brain is still interpreting that space to some degree as representing an arm. Um, and, and, and that is one of the fascinating things about representation in the brain, the, the way in which these maps work to represent our experiences, that they can be in wild and wacky ways divorced from an, a, and in very profound and upsetting and, and disturbing ways, divorced from our actual physical body and experience. And when that happens, it can have major, major repercussions. So we have these maps and now we know about them and you can map them out. You can, you can figure out where they're at and what they represent and stuff. So for the hope of the future, what does knowing about these maps, how can it help us in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I do, one of the things, well, one of the things that I think is important to acknowledge that I wanna do just first is that it, it does, does remind us that, um, you know, it does remind us of the importance of childhood for, for supporting the growth of these maps, giving children 
enriched experiences that help to give them sort of diverse brain maps that will serve them well throughout life and upon which they will build the, you know, those are become the foundations for things like reading and mathematics. And um, so, and, you know, comprehension of time, you know, like being able to, the, a lot of the skills that we use later are built from these brains that are, and the experiences that happen early. So we want to, we should, as a society, want to um, make it so that every child has enrichment, has um, you know, a safe environment to kind of experience their surroundings and have that infrastructure on board for, for the rest of their lives. Um, I, uh, so, but I also have a whole chapter where I talk about how we are now using these maps, our knowledge of these maps to, um, to basically read the brain, read out from the brain or communicate information into the brain. Um, and so um, what I mean by that is we can now connect, um, they're called brain computer interfaces or BCIs. We can now use these maps as like a portal to either transmit information. So say that somebody goes blind um, and one of the, you could, you can, in theory, you can transmit information into the primary visual cortex directly, you know, with electrodes. Um, and that information can replace the information that the eyes no longer provide. So that somebody who would be blind can now, can now see, right? And we, and we, um, we, we do something sort of like that, not in the brain, but in the cochlea with cochlear implants. Um, so the idea is that you can kind of generate activity in the brain that will give people, um, give people the input that they have lost. Um, or conversely, if they, if they have like spinal cord damage and they can't move their body parts, um, even though their brain is intact, you can, you can put some electrodes in there. You can listen to those neurons. And if you know what they represent and how they represent it, um, a computer can, can listen to their activity and translate that into, um, a, a movement of a robotic arm, for example, so that you, so that this individual could um, uh, be able to move their body or at least the robotic um, um, prosthetics in a way that allows them to be uh, more independent. So there's incredible potential um, for these, for using these maps to, um, to empower people who have been sidelined by, by injury or brain damage. Um, um, or like external peripheral damage to their, their sensory organs or their body. Um, uh, so yes, it's, it's like, but it's not there yet. So there's still quite a bit of work to be done to perfect it. Yes. But, but it's, it's coming and it's, and it's total Star Trek next generation level. Like, I don't know if you know, ever watched that, but LeVar Burton, he could not, he was born blind, but they, you know, he had the thing that they put on his head that communicated to his brain and it made images for him. Oh, um, yes. I was a truckie. Yes. <laughs> right on. Awesome. Yes, exactly. so, so in theory, that's that would be one of the goals of these sorts of technologies. It's coming because everything that has ever come out on Star Trek has happened from flip phones to how we communicate to computer, uh, whatever. I mean, the only thing we haven't done yet is the teleportation thing. <laughs> so, but that's yes. coming too. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to volunteer, but it's only a matter of time, because if we can think of it in our minds, we seem to be able to create it somehow. So it's only a matter of time. Interesting. Yeah, could be. 
So you've got your your new baby out and you're watching it take legs and run around um, your book. I mean, uh, what's next? What are you what are you up to now? What are you going to do? Yeah. So, um, well, I'm not planning on writing another book anytime soon. <laughs> right now, I am um, um, enjoying the book being out um, and I am enjoying sharing it with the world. I am focused a lot on my, my research and um, getting getting my research papers out. And, um, so I have been in particular, actually, um, I've been focused on, um, uh, so I, uh, psychiatric illness in children and, um, and sensory sensitivity, which is a, which is a phenomenon in which children, and also this occurs in adults, um, have, um, you know, kind of experienced distress, um, from sensory inputs that other people, might not even notice or might just brush off. Um, so there are ways in which individuals can be particularly um, affected by their sensory environment. And, um, you know, this can, this is, uh, has been seen, and you see this a lot with people who are suffering, who are experiencing, who are autistic or who are um, suffering from psychiatric, certain psychiatric illnesses. Um, also, and often it tends to happen in, in children identified as gifted. So there's just, it's just this kind of, this uh, different way of engaging and experiencing the world. Um, and I, I wanna understand what it is and what's causing it um, and how it works. Awesome. What about your blog? Are you gonna pick your blog back up? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, you know, I, I would like to blog a little bit um, about the book um, because I, uh, I wanna share some of the stories about how it, it came about. And, and I wanna talk a little bit about the illustrations, which um, I, I worked with uh, Paul Kim is a wonderful scientific illustrator and he made these beautiful hand-drawn illustrations. And so I, I thought I might be able to highlight some of those in the, in the in blogs, but I, um, I also, I find that there is so much less time than there, there are things to do with it. <laughs> I probably will never be able to get back to real blogging on a regular basis. <laughs> well, as long as you find a way to write, because what keeps a writer happy is writing. Um, especially you got to, you know, your expressive outlet. Yes. Yes. It's kind of a compulsion. I think you have to, you just, sometimes you just have to do it. So I, I will do that. So Rebecca, how can people find out about your book? Um, I, I will put the, the, the links in the, you know, in the, the show notes, uh, but is, is Amazon the best place to go? Or would you rather them learn more ways to find your book? Oh, well, um, there, there's also an indie bound will, which will send you to your local bookstore. Um, and, um, you know, Barnes and Noble is, is out there and, and it's, um, I think supporting, um, our, our brick and mortar bookstores is a, is a wonderful thing when we can. So yes, absolutely. Please, um, please check your local bookstore. Um, and, um, um, and I hope that, I just hope that people enjoy it. I hope that people find a way to connect to it and that they walk away from the book feeling like they sort of, they understand themselves and their connection to their environment in a different way. I also, I want to thank the Sloan Foundation for uh, funding Brainscapes. The Sloan Foundation has this amazing program, the Program for Public Understanding of Science and Technology. And it is, um, it is just a wonderful uh, program for helping scientists and science writers communicate science to the general public, which 
we obviously need more of. So um, they were um, wonderful in, in helping make this book possible. That is awesome. I will put that in our show notes as well. Guys, if you're listening and you've ever been curious about the wonders going on in your own head, the wonders of your brain, do yourself a favor and check out Brainscapes. Dr. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Tim. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.